You're now listening to a brand new episode of the Play Big Faster podcast. Look what you done started. Talk to him. Attorney, high-performance coach, and speaker Cherie Prince asks hard questions to really get to the bottom of what makes entrepreneurs tick. From starting a business, marketing, strategies, and the ins and outs of their industries. We talk everything from book recommendations, lifestyle hacks, and everything possible to get you inspired and motivated to build your own business. The Play Big Faster podcast starts now. Let's go. Welcome to another episode of the Play Big Faster podcast. We are joined today by Jessica Barlow, jury consultant. Hey, Jessica. Hi, how are you, Sherry? Doing great, doing great. Thank you so much for being with us today. Tell us, trial consultant, what exactly is a trial consultant? Yeah, Um, so we are the people behind the scenes that uh, help attorneys to get their case prepared for trial. Not on every case and not every trial for for sure. But we help with focus groups, mock trials, testing the case, helping attorneys figure out how is the best way to present the case, helping sometimes with jury selection and selecting or deselecting jurors, um, opening statement development and strategy, voir dire strategy. Those are the types of things that we help with. So Jessica, I know you probably not, did not just wake up one day and say, I want to be a jury consultant. How did you get here? I went to law school at Duke and within the first semester, they had a one day talk about jury selection, which to me is just crazy that it's one day. And while I was there, I was planning on getting a master's, um, an MBA, and I was going to do focus groups for products. So I figured I was going to have a JD, which would give me a leg up, but I was really going to focus on marketing. And when they mentioned jury selection, they mentioned that there are jury consultants and that one of the best ones for plaintiff's work in the nation was in Duke and lived, um, lived near Duke in Durham. And so they mentioned his name and his name's David Ball. And I called him out of the blue and I said, you don't know who I am, but I think I'm interested in what you do. Because I thought, what a great segue from doing focus groups for products to now I have a, I'm going to have a law degree. And this is doing focus groups for legal work. And so I had lunch with him and I was fortunate that he liked me and he was uh, offered me an internship basically while I was there. So I interned with him for three and a half years while I got my, I switched to getting a master's in psychology instead of doing the MBA. So I have a JD and I have a master's in psychology and learned from him how, how to do this kind of work. So if I'm an attorney, how do I even know that I need a jury consultant? Like what are the indicators that I may need to I think that's a two-part question. That's a good question. I think to some degree, if you have never used a jury consultant, you would never think to use one. It wouldn't occur to you, oh, I need this kind of help. Once you work with somebody, you can start to see the holes in cases and see where a consultant can fit in and can help in the case. I would think really small cases may not have the budget for it, but even just discussing the case for a couple of hours with a consultant can help get you on the right foot and it can reveal problems with the case that you might not be seeing. A lot of times attorneys are so in the 
in the midst of the case that they can't see from bird's eye view of what's really happening or what normal people who are not attorneys are going to think about the case. And that's not the fault of attorneys. It's your job to be an advocate and to be that detailed about the case. But that comes with a consequence of not being able to see the forest through the trees. So a consultant who comes in from the outside can see what jurors are likely to think about the case. And depending on what you have the budget to work on in the case, can test it with jurors and figure out what are the problems. Because what you don't want to do is to go into trial and have the actual verdict be your test case which is often what it is. And then you, you know, afterwards you're interviewing the jurors and you say, well, what happened? And they give you all this feedback. Well, don't you want that feedback before you go to trial? Because then you can implement it to fix those problems before you even get there. And you know basically what the jurors are gonna say before you get to trial. Now it's my understanding that you have a multi-step approach to assisting attorneys. When you get started, I bring you in to help my case. What is the first step that we take working together? conversation about first timeline sometimes there's when I get contacted there's just not even time to do bigger projects on a case but we start just talking to the case and and what I would call case analysis is a good place to start where you spend a, an hour or two and just give me facts about the case work through it and start to see where the issues are from there people sort of decide where they want to go with it it's either okay this is these are a lot of issues I didn't even see these I didn't know that these would become potential problems, maybe we should test this on a jury. And then you move toward working on a mock jury. Sometimes you think, okay, we have a decent handle on the case. Let's work on, you know, we've brought up some good points and things that need to be worked through. How do we implement that in trial? So working on wardier questions that will address the issues that I think are going to come up for jurors so that you can talk to them openly and honestly about those issues and working on opening statements, because those are the two points at which jurors start to formulate an idea about what the case is. And so those are really critical moments in trial that if you're going to start forming a story, that's where it starts. And if you get behind when you're starting to form that story and you go through trial and you think, oh, I'm gonna make it up later. They're gonna learn this later. They're gonna understand this part later. It doesn't work that way because as people process information, each additional piece of information is filtered by the story they've already created. So if they've already started thinking against you and you present a good fact, they will either forget that fact or alter it to fit the story that they've already started to create. So similar to elections and politics, trying to change somebody's mind once they've already picked a side is near impossible. You want to get them up front, get that story set so when your opponent gets up and they start saying good things, they're forgetting their facts and they're skewing their facts and everything that you present gets added weight to it because it fits within that story. And so voir dire and opening are critical for setting that up. It doesn't mean that you will necessarily win if you've won by the end of opening, but it sets you up very well for once all of the testimony and other evidence starts coming in. So would a jury consultant be good in all settings? So, you know, you have your criminal setting and civil and state and federal courts. I mean, are these skills and you know that you can use in all settings such as those? Yes, I would say rarely would a consultant be called in on the government side of criminal cases just because of budget. They just don't tend to spend money on, on cases unless it was a really high profile case, then maybe they would. I've personally only been called in on the defense side on criminal cases and for sure anything that is on the civil side, doesn't matter which court it's in, it's still, people making decisions. Even if you have a, a bench trial, 
um, judges are people too. They may be able to sort through the evidence a little bit better and cleaner, but they still have biases. They still, their brains process information the same way. So creating a coherent, good story is just as important there as it is with jurors. It just may shift in terms of how detailed you can get in your story. But all of it matters regardless of what court you're in. Now in federal court, the judge won't allow you to do your own questioning most of the time of jurors. They might allow you to follow up on questioning. So that shifts how you would prepare for, for jury selection, but you're still submitting questions to the judge most times for them to ask on your behalf and you still have to know what you're looking for. So Jessica, you mean we get to take them to court with us? Yes. Yeah. Often people will have me sit next to them at council table and help keep an eye on the jurors, um, figure out the answers to their questions, look for people who are maybe not being truthful based on how they're answering some more mundane questions. And then you ask them more critical question and they shift their behavior, things like that, that we can help to figure out who you should deselect. And, and, and I always say deselect because it's never jury selection. You don't get to select who you want to keep. It's always deselecting the ones that are the worst for you. And um, you're, you're rarely ever to deselect all of the bad jurors that are the worst for you. So that's also why stories and framing and opening are so important because you have to assume you're going to have jurors that are going to be against you by the end of jury selection. So that's, that's step one of the process. You talked about the analysis portion. What's the next step? It depends on the case and it depends on what, what the budget is, what the time frame is. Testing a case is fantastic if you have the ability to do it. And, and sometimes people want to do it on their own. A lot of attorneys will test their own cases and run their own focus groups. And I've seen a lot of that more recently because people are realizing the value of it, but realizing that they can't on every case pay a consultant to do it. And so I've even created a free ebook. You're welcome to contact me to get a copy of that on how to do your own focus groups correctly, because you can't just walk into it and think you're going to test your case. There's a danger in doing that because if you don't know how to do it correctly, you can get skewed results. And then you're relying on those skewed results. And there's nothing to indicate, oh, I did this wrong. No matter which way you're doing it, you hear jurors talking about your case. And so what ends up happening is that you say, oh, well, they said this, I must be able, I have to fix that in some way. That may not actually even be an issue in your case. If you had run the focus group correctly, you may be relying on completely unreliable evidence and, and feedback. So what I've tried to do is put together a guide for people to try to do these correctly if they're gonna do them on their own. And that's, that's one way that you can gear off and, and, and take the case analysis and go do your own work and then come back and say, okay, here's what happened. Here's a video of what the juror said. What do I do with this now? You know, now I have all this information. What am I supposed to do with it? And so a consultant can help you to sort through that, figure out why jurors are saying the things that they're saying and what we need to address. And then ideally you go back out and test it again, because we can come up with things that we think are going to address those problems and retest it. And it may or may not work. So you want to test as much as you can to figure out, okay, now I have a story that is resonating with jurors and it's sticking. Even though we throw the opponent's facts at them, they're still coming back to our side and they're understanding it. And that's really the point that you want to get to. Now you mentioned that they may not be doing it correctly. What is the wrong way to do focus groups? I mean, give us some examples. I know you're probably seeing some actually in practice. Yeah, there's a lot of small areas where there are pitfalls. And so for example, the way that you recruit jurors. Some attorneys will hire an unemployment agency and bring jurors in, but that's not representative of your demographic. When you go to trial, you don't have a group of unemployed people there validating your case. And so especially when you get to the point of testing damages and trying to figure out how 
valuable is this injury or, or is the case, you can't ask a group of unemployed people to value that because their valuation might be different than people who are earning $150,000 a year and who are out there working and who have lost, if the plaintiff has lost their job, how does somebody who's unemployed value that compared to somebody else? It, it shifts it. Um, other times people will go off of Craigslist or Facebook and try to pull people that way, but the, that's also still not representative of your demographic. So I think recruiting in the area that you are doing, that the case is in is, is vital and getting jurors that actually match your demographics and come from more of a random sampling is what's important. Other areas that people fall into pitfalls is when they're giving the presentation, they'll, they'll hype their case more. And really what you wanna do is hype the other side's case because you wanna find the worst case scenario for your case. And by pushing your case, you may win the focus group and then you get to trial and you lose a trial. So you want to be toning your side down and putting as much information as possible. Sometimes even making up things if you don't know what the other side's going to say and try to get as much bad information out as possible. So those are just two examples of things that attorneys think they're just gonna walk in and do this and then they get wrong results from it. So as it relates to mock trial services, how do you, give us some examples of how you offer those services to attorneys and actually what you do for those mock trials. So I usually, if they're hiring me to do a mock trial, I run it from start to finish. So we will hire a recruiter who will randomly recruit jurors. They, they have jurors that they will randomly dial on the phone, dial numbers, start to build databases. They'll pull from different areas. And so it, it's a much better recruit. Um, I will work with them. I'll find the venue. We'll get AV set up. We have different rooms for different groups. If we're doing deliberation groups, um, present the information to a large group at once, send them into two to four different rooms to deliberate. All of that video gets fed into an observation room where the attorneys are so they can watch live what's happening. Questionnaires are developed so that we can track attitudes throughout. So we give a neutral statement of the case, test their attitude and their leanings, give a plaintiff statement and exhibits and presentation, and then test again. Same for the defense, test again. And so you can see how their attitudes are changing. So if, if you're on the plaintiff's side and you're presenting your case after the plaintiff statement, obviously you should have most people on your side. And so that would be a good indication of whether your argument is even effective, right? If you still have people, half of them are still for the defense after your plaintiff's argument, that's not a good argument. So now we know we have to work on that. Then you should give the defense argument and it should sway a lot of people back. And if you haven't done that, then you know that you weren't making a strong enough case for the defense. And so that helps us gauge whether the research is going as, as intended as we go along. And then you watch them deliberate and come to a decision. And then I go through all of those videos, all of their questionnaires, all of the data, and try to pull from it. What are they saying? Why are they saying it? What are the holes in the case? And what are some ways that we can make it stronger? So you mentioned questionnaires. How do you develop your questionnaires? So, you know, it used to be that every day, paper and pen, and I would, you know, create them on Word, and I would um, try to come up with questions that, depending on what evidence is being presented at what time, you can ask questions like, you know, which, which way do you lean? Do you lean more in favor of the plaintiff, more in favor of the defense? How strong is that opinion? What are the best facts for the plaintiff? What are the best facts for the defense? What are the worst facts for each side? What more do you want to hear? Um, you can do after witness testimony, how just pick words that describe this witness. And what else did you want them to explain that they didn't say? Did they help or hurt this side of the case or that side of the case? 
And so you, you get a good idea of what people are thinking individually, but it's important then to also get them in a group because you can look through their questionnaires and think, oh, I'm doing really good. Their answers are good for us. And you get them in a group and somehow everything changes. So that, that deliberation process is, is really important to see. So it seems like this is a lengthy process. Generally, if you're going to run the mock trial from start to finish, about how much time do you start off, you know, working with the attorneys and saying, hey, I need a week or two weeks. How long does it take for the process for mock trial? Yeah, I would say minimum a month. Um, and some of that, it's not because we're working 10 hours a day for a month on it, but attorneys have busy schedules. My schedule is busy. And so as we're creating scripts and figuring out what needs to be put into the mock, I have to send things back and forth to you. So you might send me an opening statement. I'm going to make a ton of edits, ask a lot of questions, send it back. You have to answer those questions, answer the edits, send it back to me. There's often six rounds back and forth to get things in where they need to be on top of Sometimes we have to take mock video depositions of some of the experts, if you have them, your client, to test how people react to them, figure out what exhibits go in. So it's a lot of prep work. It's not that it's an all-day prep, but everybody's busy, and so it takes time. And, you know, the recruiter needs a few weeks to recruit the jurors. I need time to have everything to me in order to figure out what to ask on the questionnaires. And so ideally, you start six to eight weeks out so that we have a lot of time to figure this out. But a month is doable, and once we get past that, it's really tight to get it done. Now, you mentioned six to eight weeks. Is that six to eight weeks before the trial, or just six to eight weeks, period, to make sure that you have enough time to complete the task? Yeah, period. So you don't want to run it, you know, if you run it a week before your trial, the problem is how you have time to then make corrections and to really implement what you're learning. So there's different points at which different types of focus groups and mock trials make sense. As you're in discovery, I really highly recommend that you run some sort of mock trial or focus group. It may not need to be a full mock because you might not even know yet what experts are going to say. But if you at least run some focus groups, have either yourself or, or a consultant in the room running it, asking questions, feeding them information, what more do you want to know? Who do you want to talk to? What we often find out is when we run these past the discovery deadline, jurors want to hear and see things that we can no longer get for them. And so it's important to test the case at, at different points throughout discovery to make sure you have all the information that jurors are going to want to hear, that you have the experts that they want to hear from. And then after, after that point, then we can test it in a more formal mock trial to see them deliberate and, and start framing your arguments better. And that you want to do in time to be able to shift your opening statement, your order of proof, how you might do different graphics. You know, we might change up graphics as jurors say that was confusing to me I don't know what that was trying to show or a timeline isn't in isn't part of your graphics yet but we really need a detailed timeline we need time to get all of that put together so you mentioned that it's not eight to five every day but if I were a potential mock juror what sort of time commitment would would you expect me during this process mock jurors usually the pro the projects are usually run in one day so generally there's about an hour, hour and a half per side to present evidence. Often I'm the one presenting it in a neutral manner. Some attorneys want to get up there and present it and we can talk about the pluses and minuses for doing it that way. And then you need to leave about three hours at the end for them to deliberate. And so between doing questionnaires, which takes time, giving them a lunch break for about an hour and then coming back by, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon, then they can deliberate from two till five. So mock jurors are generally there for one day. 
sometimes there are cases, I just worked on a case where there was so much information that we should have had a two-day mock trial. We, we really needed a full day to present the evidence, maybe even a day and a half, honestly, and then let the jurors deliberate that second day. So you, you, it's good if you can have a good handle on the evidence that's going to be coming up before we start planning it, because it's hard to shift that once you've got jurors recruited and everybody, you have a venue for a certain time, you can't extend it. So it, it's good to have a good handle on what you think you need to present before we get started. Now you mentioned that this is done before trial, but are there instances where you run a mock jury during trial or has that come up? Has anyone requested that? Yeah, so that's called a shadow jury. And so you can have a group of people who sit through the entire trial and who watch it remotely. And then you have a consultant there. So as attorneys are presenting evidence to the real jurors, you have a set of mock jurors who are giving you feedback. You know, this was confusing. I need to hear more about this. This is what I'm thinking. So that you can make adjustments during trial on the fly. So with the shadow jury, how do you mirror that um, so that you have the same composition as the actual jury? Are you looking at the same number of men and women? You know, same type of occupations and things like that. Yeah, and you may not be able to get it to that degree. What you can do is match the demographics of the area. And you can have multiple groups that you can potentially select and, and move groups around to try to get a group that is composed the same. But everybody, even if you have the same demographics, have different life experiences. And so picking a jury based off of demographics is almost never a valid, reliable way to pick a jury anyway. So having a jury that has the same number of men, women, ages may not doesn't mean that you're mirroring the experiences of the jury panel anyway. So all you can do is have jurors who match demographics of that panel on there to give you feedback. Now, if it's if it's a nursing home fall case or a med mal case and there's two nurses on the jury, you obviously would want to have a couple of nurses on your shadow jury. Um, the trouble is in recruiting that fast enough or, or because usually you don't know who your jurors are until the morning of trial. You know, in a huge trial, you might know ahead of time the judge sends them home and then maybe you can make adjustments, but you have to be ready to go as soon as the trial starts. So, so it, it may not be possible to mirror it exactly. You're just looking for feedback that you can feed to the attorneys so that they can change things up and make adjustments before it gets to the point of them deliberating. Now, Jessica, it seems like you have been doing this forever. So I know you have some funny stories for us. Tell us about one of your most memorable mock juries. So, and this was at, almost at the beginning of my career, but it always sticks out to me is that there was a med mal case and a woman went in for a surgery. She was, you know, overweight and had to have, I, I don't remember what the surgery was for, but she had to have, go have surgery. And during the surgery, there's a, you know, she walks into the hospital, she hands them her living will and all her documents and then goes into surgery. During the surgery, there's a two hour lapse in notes. No one knows what happened during these, these two hours. She comes out of surgery. She's bleeding out over the period of four days. She bleeds to death. So the jurors come in and we expected some talk about, you know, pre-existing conditions. She was already overweight. She had higher blood pressure. Maybe all that contributed to her not doing well in surgery. We expected some of that. What I didn't expect is in, in comes the first group, watching them deliberate. And somebody says, you know, she dropped off this living will before she went in there. I think she was ready to die. She was prepared to die because that's why she gave them the will. And I thought, that's an interesting comment to make and but I didn't think it would gain traction but it did and so that became a central focus of that focus group and I thought well this is why we run more than one panel 
right? Because some things go wacky in, when you run one group and you can't trust that. So in comes the second group and here's the deliberations. And again, she was ready to die. She gave them her will. So the attorneys have walked into this case thinking this is just part, you know, when you go in for a surgery, they ask, do you have a living will? Do you have all these documents? She was just doing what they asked her to bring. And it's a quick fix. You just have to tell the jurors, you know, this is what she was asked to bring. And, and it would have fixed the problem, but they would have never known that. And they would have lost the case based on the fact that jurors thought that she was there ready to die and didn't give any, you know, she didn't fight to live after this surgery. So wow. I think things that, yeah, that come out like that. Wow. Oh my gosh. So we have done the mock trial. We've done the shadow jury. Um, tell us what other facets of the case do you help with and um, as it relates to working with attorneys? Yeah. So most of the people who call me in want to do more of the case analysis. Let's talk through the case. Let's figure out what the holes are. Let's work it up, sort of break it all down and then rebuild the case in a stronger manner. And so we, I do a lot of that, which then leads into the voir dire prep and opening statement development, because that's where your themes and your story get told. And so often that sort of package of those three things is what I get called in a lot for. Attorneys will often then want me to come and help select the jury, and I'm happy to do that. What I'm trying to preach to people is that before that happens, you need to practice the jury selection and do a mock jury selection with, you know, you can recruit anybody off the street. This is where the recruit doesn't matter because what we're looking for is how you are asking questions and how you're interacting with people. Are you following up on cause challenges? Are you asking the right questions? Did you see that the person over there raised their hand or that she gave some indication that she wanted to say something about this? And did you pass right over that? Sometimes we create questions that are good for the case, but because they're new to the attorney, they stumble over it. They don't, the delivery isn't right. They take too long to get it out. The judge objects. And so the process has to be smooth. It has to be second nature to you. You have to feel comfortable with the questions. And the way you do that is by practicing. So when I have attorneys ask me to create questions for them for jury selection and come and select the jury, what often happens is things fall completely apart in trial where they're asking, they're skipping over all the questions we agreed that we would ask because they're, they're fumbling around. They don't know what's supposed to come next. It's not flowing naturally for them. And what we end up with is questions that aren't very helpful and that jurors aren't responding well to, that aren't giving us the information we need. And then you're paying for me to be there to basically select them based off of their demographics, their jobs, their, their employment and what they like to do during their weekend. And that's not the information that we really need to know to pick a good jury. So that's my caveat to doing those kinds of services is that if, if you have to choose between having somebody there at jury selection with you or practicing and learning how to do a good voir dire, practice and learn the voir dire. That's so much more important. And you brought up a very good point because if you've never used a jury consultant, you may not know that it's more than just demographics that, you know, are important when you're actually choosing a jury because all attorneys are not trial attorneys. So there's definitely right. distinction. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Now, is there any particular, um, area of law that you think that your services work better with? Not particularly, I mean, anything can be tested. I, my personal specialty is in plaintiff cases and criminal yeah. defense cases. That's just what I tend to work on because of my background working with David Ball. Um, it, it, that's just where my career and path has taken me. But I would say less plaintiff's attorneys use consultants than do the defense side. The defense uses them all the time. 
um, they want to test the cases and know, you know, insurance companies want to know what they're in for. Should we pay out on this claim? So everybody across IP cases, personal injury cases, med mal cases, slip and fall, it, it works equally in all of them. So what about post-verdict interviews? Yeah, so when you have a case that you've lost, um, it can help to talk to the jurors. Now, sometimes the judge won't allow you to talk to them right after trial, and sometimes they won't allow you to contact them at all. But when you are allowed to talk to them, when, you, when you're the attorney approaching them, they may be guarded, and if, of course, because you lost, they may not tell you all the facts. And it can help to have a neutral party come in and call them afterwards and find out what happened and, and sort of do an interview with them. Sometimes people won't answer, so you only get a fraction of the jury who will answer your call and do those interviews with you, but it can tell you a lot. And sometimes it can reveal that there was juror misconduct, which can then completely overturn the verdict. So if you either suspect juror misconduct or you're gonna retry the case and you need to know what happened, or even just for your own personal information moving forward in the learning experience, it can be very helpful to have a consultant call and talk to them and walk them through. Especially because when attorneys do those interviews, they hear an answer and they think, for example, one attorney I just worked with said, well, we lost because, you know, I talked to some jurors afterwards and they hated my expert. And I think that's probably true, but the problem is people make up logical responses to things that are unconscious for them. So, you know, the reason that you went to a store and picked out a blue pair of shoes, you could say blue is my favorite color. That may have absolutely nothing to do why you actually picked those shoes, but you don't know that because none of us know what our actual train of thought is and what led us to that decision. So when you have a consultant who's asking the questions, they can try to break that down and figure out through other questions, what is really the theme of what's going on here? Maybe it was the expert, but maybe you didn't understand the actual story of the case. And so that expert then wasn't likable because they weren't hitting on what you thought they should be talking about. So it wasn't actually the expert. It turns out that it was the story. We have to sort of dissect what they're saying to try to get at the root of what happened. And so when you mention asking the right questions, that, oh my gosh, that is so important. Um, what about, in some of these post-trial interviews, what are some, give us another story because we're all about stories here. <laughs> um, one of the most interesting things that you picked, that you found out in an actual case from talking to a juror afterwards that actually helped the, um, the attorneys that you're working with. You know, I, I haven't. I wish I could say I found some juror misconduct. I know a lot of my colleagues have found that before. That would have been interesting to me if I, right. if I had found that. I, you do sometimes find that jurors have Googled things, you know, despite what judges tell them to do or not do. You will often hear, well, I looked this up or I heard this. Um, I don't know that I have any great stories from post-trial interviews, honestly. I, I, I found out some interesting things in terms of you think that a case is going one way and you think that this is what you're presenting. And then when you talk to them, that's just not what they heard. I mean, you, the, the interesting part when you talk to them is they'll say, well, they never said ABC or that they said XYZ. And you know what was presented and it was not that, that they, they actually did present exactly what the juror was looking for or they presented the opposite of what the juror thought. Um, and, and they make assumptions of, well, they must have been distracted and on their cell phone or things that were never in evidence that become a big part of how they decide the case. And it's usually based around their experiences in life. You know, I've had a surgery before and I know that you don't come out of it and just, and have years more of therapy to do. You know, I came out of it and I had some pain and then it resolved. And 
I think they're just milking it because that's just not, you know, I've had the surgery and my husband's had the surgery and, and we were fine. And so you see where the evidence doesn't matter as much. It's the story of their experiences and how that evidence fit within their experiences. Now you just don't do trials. You also do mediations too, correct? You know, I don't do mediations. I, I have gone through mediation training to, to be a mediator, but I don't do mediations. What I do is prepare people for mediation. Gotcha. So, okay. Yeah. A lot of cases are, of course, settled in mediation. But what I think attorneys are missing on is if you do this upfront work, if you do some focus groups before mediation, you can take clips into mediation with you. So if, if it goes well, you can start showing the other side. This is what jurors said about the case. And here's you know, vignettes of them saying, I'm going to award $4 million. And this is what I think about the defendant. And you show those, it will bolster your case for mediation. So even if you have no intention of going to trial, you can get a higher value for it. On the other end, if you try the case and it goes horribly, you never have to mention that in mediation, but it may alert you that you, you know, maybe the case isn't worth what you thought, or it's not as strong as you thought. And you might settle for a, for a lesser amount than you would have held out for otherwise to avoid a loss at trial. So my focus is on getting people prepared for mediation because you should be preparing for mediation like you do trial. I mean, that's where a lot of the bread and butter comes from for attorneys. That's where a lot of their clients get their payouts. And so to walk in there not knowing really much about what your case is worth or, or what jurors are going to say about it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, so even from working with attorneys on um, for their opening statements and mock juries and now talking about how you pair them with mediation. Uh, what about witness prep? Are there any services that you offer with witness prep? That, you know, now that we have our case pared down, we know what we're strong yet. Could you help us actually prepare our witnesses for trial? Yeah. And so there's a couple different types of witness prep. One is preparing the client because often they will have some underlying guilt about what happened. They will feel like, you know, afraid of what's going to come at them. And so those emotions can change how they present themselves at trial. And you want to work through those emotions with them to get them to be a stronger witness and to accept, okay, well, you know, I did this wrong, but here's why I think I'm only 10% responsible for whatever happened. And to say it with pride and to say it uh, genuinely. The other type is to work with experts and to, and somewhat on, on how they would present and slowing down their, their talk and using words that, real people can understand and getting up there and being a teacher, we can certainly work on some of that, but it also is work with the attorney and the expert in terms of the story of what they're going to tell and how we tell that story and what they should be explaining to the jurors. So I, I think there's different facets of it. Um, now for family law cases, I do a lot of witness prep with clients in divorce and custody cases because, you know, in, in the civil realm with, with normal cases, it, it matters a lot how your client comes across. If you have an unlikable client, both sides know that could settle a case and because they know that how the juror is going to view the client and it could go really well and overcome a lot of bad facts if you have a really likable, believable client. But in most cases, the client is only one part of the trial, whereas in divorce and custody cases, the client is almost the entire part of the case and the trial. And so before they go into, um, if they have a child and they're fighting over custody before the child evaluation happens and people walk into the home, you know, that evaluator will write up a report, hand it to the judge. The judge often believes them because they're a third party neutral witness to the entire incident and figure out who's the best parent. And, and if you're not prepared for that and the client is coming across as angry, bitter, defensive, 
those are not helpful to becoming likable and believable. And so while those emotions are understandable when they're in that, that frame of mind and going through a divorce, we have to help get them past that, at least for a short period of time. I'm not claiming that I'm, a, I'm not a therapist and I can't make long-term changes with them, but I can get it to stick for a few days so that they can go into the evaluations, into the hearings and into trial, coming across much more grounded, more believable, more likable, less anxious, less defensive, and that can have a huge impact in family law cases. And that was my very next question. It's like, how do you overcome having a difficult um, client? You know, if you're unlikable, sometimes that does. It just kind of shows up in your face. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. Another, another part um, of the litigation process, depositions. Give us your role and how you can have the depositions. I don't have a huge role in depositions. I think my role more is on preparing you before the deposition as to what needs to come out of it. So, you know, if we know that jurors want to understand something about an expert, we definitely need to hit on that in the deposition and figuring out sometimes we're creating rules and guidelines for the case and those need to be set up through depositions and through your experts and theirs. And so if we know ahead of time what those are gonna be, you can hone in on it a lot better in depositions so that at trial you're not thinking, well, we can say that this is what should have happened, but we don't know what they're going to say in response. So sometimes if you know that ahead of time, that can become part of your deposition. Now, Jessica, everything you've told me sounds awesome and invaluable. And my question is, Jessica, what does it cost like to get a service like yours? And we're not trying to hold you to numbers. Yeah. <laughs> but like, you know, what can what can a firm expect to retain services like yours? Um, with a case? So it depends on what we're doing on it. Um, I, I will often work hourly on some of the smaller services like case analysis and voir dire preparation and mock voir dire, um, those things opening. It makes more sense to work hourly because every case is so different. And sometimes an opening statement will take five hours to get in a good place and sometimes it takes 15. So it, it just makes sense to do that hourly. My hourly rate currently is four twenty-five an hour, and so that's what I would bill for witness prep or any of those those smaller services. When we get into talking about focus groups and mock trials, it it again varies greatly because it depends if the attorney putting on the focus group and I'm helping in the background. Am I just helping create scripts and you're going in there and running it? Am I helping with the setup? Am I helping with the back end in terms of evaluating the case? looking through the video, coming up with a plan to move forward, or are you doing all of that? So, so it, it, it depends on what's happening. If we're talking about a huge mock trial where it's a full day mock trial, two to three groups of jurors, AV, recruiting, I mean, it, it gets up into, I'd say, ranges between 40 to $60,000 for a full day of that, including you know, the questionnaires and the, and the analysis at the end, but maybe not including a full report, which would take another 15 hours to write up. So it depends, you know, we can piecemeal it based on what people have to spend and what services they want and what they want to take on and what they want me to take on. So you've been doing this for, it looks like almost two decades. What would you tell the first year law student, Jessica, who was just now entering law school, what advice would you give her um, about your current career path to kind of skyrocket her career to where you are today? I would say to undo the thinking that law school is, you know, 
is implementing because you're, you're thinking like an attorney and just know that jurors don't think that way. So what you think is important very well may not be important to jurors. What you think is a plus for your case could be a negative. And so it's important to be open-minded about that, work up the case, you know, be an advocate, but pull in additional help and run your case by as many people as possible. Even if you go to a mall and hand out gift certificates to talk to people about the case, or you offer to sit down for a slice of pizza or a coffee with people, run your case by people throughout, throughout the process, before discovery, during discovery, after discovery. You need input and you need to, to have an idea of what a normal person is going to think about the case. Now, a lot of what you do involves a lot of heavy mental lifting. Let's talk about your morning routine. I mean, what do you do to kind of stay focused and get centered before you go off and do all this work? Oh, I, I, I don't have the option of that because I have two young kids. So in my mornings are, are getting the kids ready, getting them off to school, um, getting the dog out for a walk, and, and that's, that, that's my mornings. <laughs> <laughs> so well, tell us, where did you grow up at, Jessica? Where did I grow up? I grew up in, in Denver, in Colorado. Okay, and that's where your practice is now? Yeah, I'm in Littleton now, but I would say my practice is actually less in Colorado than it is all over the rest of the country. I do a lot of work in Texas and California, Nevada. Um, I get called in from Florida, you know, and often we can do a lot of this remotely now, especially because of COVID, a lot of things are on Zoom. So it almost doesn't matter where you're, where, where the people are and where I am, but um, because I'm out this way and, and travel for the jury selections and things like that, I get a lot of work out this direction. So... In doing what you do, what is one of the things that you think that people often misunderstand about your work? I think the biggest misunderstanding is that you have to be able to spend that forty to $60,000 on your case in order to hire a consultant. And so while a mock trial is obviously the, the top end of what we can figure out about the case and will give you the most information, that is not what most people hire us for, and it's not necessary. So even if you have... Um, you know, $1,000 to spend on the case. We can talk about the case for a couple of hours and give you pointers. I will know in, in listening to the case from hearing thousands of jurors talk where they're likely to go with it. Now they surprise me every focus group. So I'm not gonna say that I'm, I can read their minds because I, I'm still shocked when I listen to them, but I can have a good idea of what most of the things are gonna be that are gonna come at you and then work toward getting those fixed. So, Productivity hacks. I heard you say that you're super busy. You got kids and a dog. So if you had an extra hour to spend a day and you can spend it any way you want it to, tell us how you spend it. Um at a hot spring somewhere, relaxing. <laughs> good choice. <laughs> yeah. Definitely good choice. Good choice. Um yeah, well Jessica, listen, what else would you like to share with us about um your company and just, you know, encouraging others, if there was someone who wanted to follow in your footsteps um, and become a jury consultant, what information did you share with them? I think if you're trying, if you want to become a consultant, um, just get involved. I, it, it's a hard thing to break into, but it's very rewarding once you're in, you know, go to trials, watch attorneys, interview jurors, um, join ASTC, which is the American Society of Trial Consultants. Just get involved and meet people and and do the work because that's that's how you learn. Sometimes you have to offer it for free. Um, sometimes that works to call. That's when you can call the the DAs and and 
prosecutors and talk to them and say, listen, I'm trying to learn this. Can I work on some of your cases? Can I just sit through it? Can I give you some free advice and, and, and try to just build it up that way? Now, you are an attorney, but you don't have to be an attorney to be a juror consultant, correct? No, you gotcha. do not. And most are not. Um, sometimes it works against you because attorneys feel like I'm paying to have somebody who doesn't think like an attorney to look at the case. And so I've never really been, a, I practiced for oh, about four to six months. I've, I've never been really a practicing attorney. I was always geared toward doing this. And so I don't get that backlash so much, but I think some people do. And um, most people come into it from psychology, you know, the even marketing, um, David Ball has a PhD in theater. So wow. usually come at it from social sciences or theater backgrounds or marketing, yeah. Well, good deal. Well, Jessica, listen, thank you so much for joining us for the Play Big Faster podcast. And until next time, play big faster. Thanks. Do you want to start your own business? Confused about where to begin? Not sure if you can do this? I'm glad you made your way here. Cut through the confusion. I invite you to join in on the five-day Play Big Faster Challenge. You'll get step-by-step -step guidance on how to start and scale your dream business faster. Five days perfectly structured. Build the business you've always dreamed of without spending tons of money and hiring consultants or a lot of staff. Join the challenge today at www.playbigfaster.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Play Big Faster podcast. Want more entrepreneurial content? I like this. Make sure to subscribe for future episodes. Already subscribed. I just clicked on it. Don't forget to like and leave a review. Share with a friend that needs this in their life. I think you need this more than I. Oh, and make sure to follow Cherie on IG at Cherie Speaks. And remember to play big faster.